Welcome to The Compass, a podcast ministry of Calvary Baptist Church of Fayetteville, Arkansas. We're thrilled that you've chosen to download and listen as we continue our series from Rags to Riches, taken from the pages of the Letter to the Ephesians. Do you live in Northwest Arkansas and need a church home? Let me take this opportunity to invite you to join us for worship on Sundays at 1030 a.m. at 1410 North Porter Road of Fayetteville. Now, if you have any questions about the Word or about our ministry here in Fayetteville, let me encourage you to reach out. You can contact us at info at calvaryfayetteville.com or call us at 479-442-4634. On today's podcast, Pastor Kirk is again sharing from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, with a message entitled, How to Pray for One Another. Let's listen together. Our text is Ephesians chapter 1. We actually focused on uh, this uh, last paragraph of chapter one last Sunday, and we'll do so again today, and probably for at least one more Sunday. And I'm not sure that we'll make it all the way through this message that I'd prepared for today, so if we do not, we'll finish it next time. I wanna talk to you about how to pray for one another. And though it's not announced in your uh, worship guide, your bulletin, I might say that uh, this message also has a secondary name sometimes, as uh, we are prone to do, how to pray for one another or how to walk into church. You say, well, I know how to do that. I've been doing that all of my life. Well, uh, there's more to it than just walking into church. So... Uh, If not before, by the conclusion of this message, I'll help you to see why I gave it that secondary name. Well, last week we uh, focused on what God is looking for in a church. Actually, I lifted three words out of verses 15 through 23, and I was trying to show you from this passage, not only from this passage, but, but from multiple other letters that Paul wrote to churches in the New Testament, that God is very clear about what he is looking for in you and in me. And that one day when we stand before God at the judgment seat of Christ to be judged for our lives, not judge whether or not we knew the Lord as our Savior, for understand that there are two judgments Uh, at the end of time. There is the great white throne judgment where all lost people will be judged. Everyone there will be there because they did not trust Christ as their Savior. That's the great white throne judgment. Then there is the judgment seat of Christ. And it is for all saved people. You say, well, if I'm saved, why am I going to be judged? Or if a person is lost, Why are they going to be judged? In both cases, it has to do with judging us according to our lives and how we live them, the works that we did or did not do. Lost people will be judged on the basis of their works, I believe, to determine degrees of punishment in hell. All hell is going to be horrible. 
But for those who led uh, very wicked lives and those who rejected multiple times the invitation of the Lord Jesus Christ to salvation, they will suffer more greatly than those who never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, okay? So there will be degrees of punishment in hell. There will also be degrees of reward for all those who go to heaven. I don't believe there'll be degrees of heaven, that some heaven will be better than the other parts of heaven. We will all experience the same place. We will all be with the Lord. But there is coming a great coronation day in heaven where Jesus Christ will once and for all be declared to be the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And the Bible describes in the book of Revelation that all those that are gathered around the throne and have uh, crowns of glory, crowns of rewards, those things that we will be rewarded for are going to fall at the feet of Jesus and we're going to take our rewards, our crowns, and cast them at the feet of Jesus for he is the one that's truly altogether worthy. Amen? And that was kind of weak. Amen? You say, well, I'm not too sure about that, so I'm not going to amen something I, I still have to figure out. Well, that's fine. Uh, but you'll want to have something to give to the Lord on that day, won't you? Aren't you wanting to know that, that you didn't just make it to heaven by the skin of your teeth? but rather you made it to heaven not only uh, because of the only reason people get to heaven, the glorious sacrifice of Jesus Christ, but when you get there, you have something to give to the Lord in praise and in worship. And so uh, we're talking about rewards. You're going to be tested. You're going to be graded one day at the judgment seat of Christ. And you're going to be judged on those three words we talked about last week, Faith, love, and hope. How are you doing in your faith, love, and hope? First Thessalonians says that faith produces works, service to God and others. That love uh, produces a sacrificial spirit. You'll give yourself away for others. How are you doing on that? And that also uh, you're to be growing in hope. That's not wishful thinking. That is confident assurance so that you'll be steadfast and you will endure all the tests of this life because of the hope, the confidence you have in the Lord. So we talked about faith, love, and hope last week. And we talked about how those things uh, how we can help them grow in the lives of other believers. It's through the one another commandments. Love one another, comfort one another, encourage one another, provoke one another unto good works, uh, exhort one another, admonish one another, fellowship with one another, show hospitality to one another. There's some 25 or 26 of those, including the one that Justin read a moment ago. Actually, he read of two. Confess your faults one to another and pray for one another. Those things seem to go hand in hand. But when we talk about praying for one another, the questions begin to arise. Why should we pray for one another? 
How do we pray for one another? What should we pray for one another? When and where should we pray for one another? Well, I hope the majority of those are pretty self-evident to you as a believer, but I think our scripture today is going to help answer them even further. Now, you've already discovered that Ephesians chapter 1, that this chapter in many ways is unparalleled by any other chapter of God's Word. At least it is to me. I, that doesn't mean it's more inspired. It doesn't mean that it's more God's Word than, than uh, any other passage of Scripture. But you could take in this chapter almost any two or three or four word phrase and spend hours studying that. It's so rich in theology. It's so rich in heavenly thought that it's almost beyond our ability to even comprehend. Well, if you want a simple outline for Ephesians 1, you need to remember three words. Maybe you'd like to write these down. The first word is eulogy. That's verses 3 through 14. Eulogy. Now, you and I think of eulogy as a funeral service. And we're not talking here about a funeral service. And specifically, that's not what eulogy means. Eulogy is a tribute. It is an honor. It is a blessing. Verses 3 through 14 is a tribute. It's talking about how the Father chose us. How the Son redeemed us. How the Holy Spirit has sealed us, and it is giving a tribute, an honor, a blessing about what it means to know the Lord. Then verse 15 and 16 that we read a moment ago is marked by the words thanksgiving, or the word thanksgiving. It is to give praise where praise and thanksgiving is due. And then verses 17 through 23 can be marked by the word prayer prayer. He prays a prayer for these Ephesian believers. And listen to me, Paul is teaching us how to pray for one another. Can I say to you that we, no matter how long you've been saved, no matter how long you've been a faithful church member, no matter how much of the Bible you've read or how many times you've read it, I'm going to suggest to you that the average church member doesn't know a drop in the ocean of how to pray for other believers, let alone how to pray for themselves. How are we to pray for one another in prayers that we know God will answer beyond any shadow of a doubt? That's what this passage is about. So I'm not going to reread the text. We'll work through it as we go through it in our outline today. Three thoughts. Number one, the catalyst for Paul's prayer. The catalyst for Paul's prayer. Why do we pray? Why are we instructed to pray? And why do we do this? Why is it important? Why is it so hard for me to pray. Did you know that most scholars will tell us, pastors will tell us, that prayerlessness, prayerlessness 
is the greatest sin of the church today. You believe that? I'll tell you, after 50 years in ministry, I believe it. And not only that, but I believe that prayerlessness is the greatest sin of my life. You see, I don't want to hear that about my pastor. Well, I don't want to say it to you as your pastor. But it's just the truth. And can I say something about you? And go ahead and get mad if you want to. But I'm going to say, unless you are an extremely unusual child of God, prayerlessness is your greatest sin today also. Why do we find it so hard? Why do we find our prayer lives like this? Up and down. Good for a while and then not so good for a while. Why do we struggle to pray for longer than two or three minutes at a time? Why is it oftentimes our last resort instead of our first response to life situations and life struggles? What is the catalyst for Paul's prayer? What motivates you to pray? Why do you pray when you pray? I would suggest that we all know it's right to pray for one another. We just read the commandment of God from James chapter 5 that we should pray for one another. That was our call to worship passage today. Pray for one another that you may be healed. Well, oftentimes we pray mainly out of a sense of duty as Christians. I'm a Christian. I'm supposed to pray. I recognize his lordship over my life and my need of him. So, so I try to remember to pray at least once every day out of a sense of duty. Sometimes we're motivated to pray because of needs in our lives. As we think of the various needs we have of, of strength, of encouragement, of healing, especially when life is difficult and we're burdened, we're motivated to pray, right? Out of a sense of need. What about those emergency situations? We hear of the death of a loved one or a fellow church member. We hear of someone being in an accident that we care about and they're being care flighted or ambulanced to the hospital. We've got these emergency situations where we need rescue and we need relief. Our people we care about need rescue and relief. So we are motivated to pray because something is endangering our well-being or maybe even our lives. <clears throat> emergency situations, they motivate us to pray. Sickness, death finances, some kind of impending doom. How many of us have run to Christ for rescue? I would dare say every single one of us. There's an old saying about uh, being in combat that there are no atheists in foxholes. If the situation gets bad enough and the danger becomes great enough, even the person that has denied Christ finds themselves calling on God out of sheer 
desperation. How about when we're needing wisdom for a big life decision? Is that guy Mr. Right? Is that young lady Miss Right? Is this the person I'm to marry? What college should I attend? What about that job offer? Is this the right time to make that big move, to start that new business, to buy that house? We have these situations that maybe are not emergencies, but they are certainly front burner items. We need wisdom and we want wisdom, right? All of these things motivate us to pray. And you say, well, that's where prayer life is, is founded. That's where it is grounded. There are many causes, many motivations for faithful and diligent prayer, the commandment of Scripture, our privilege and duty as Christians, because of need in others' lives, because of the emergencies of our lives, because we need wisdom for decisions. And I would say to you, now listen very closely, except for the command to pray and the privilege to pray, which are grounded in Scripture, all those other circumstances fear, need, emergency, desire, whatever it is all of those motivations are temporary are they not? as soon as the emergency is over we drift back into our prayerlessness I can't tell you how many times I have stood in a hospital room or a hospital hallway with people that have been neglectful of God, neglectful of the Word of God, neglectful of the people of God, neg neglectful of church, and a sudden emergency puts them in the hospital with a child lying there on life support or whatever, and moms and dads making all kinds of tearful commitments to Christ. I know that I haven't been what I should have been. I know that I've been neglectful in my life. And if God will just see us through this, Pastor, you're going to see me in church every Sunday. I could tell you the names of members of this church that have told me those things. And guess what? I'm still looking for them to show up. Why? Because as soon as the emergency was over, the need for God disappeared. Now that we're okay, life is back to normal. Now that I've made that decision, I don't need wisdom or direction anymore. Now that so-and-so is well, or so-and-so has gone ahead and died, is ultimately well, then I don't need to pray for them or me or anyone else again. You see, our role is God's children. That doesn't come and go. But our awareness and commitment to these realities certainly ebb and flow every day. So our prayer lives are like this. So what is the catalyst for you to pray? Is it in a family emergency? Is it the need for wisdom? Is it some kind of other problem in life that you need God? Otherwise, once the need's over, you can handle it. No, thank you, Lord. I can take it from here. Why do you pray? 
What is the motivation? Well, I said all that to say this. Paul answered that question for us in three simple words. And it's the first three words of our text today, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 15, where he says, For this reason. For this reason. For this reason. I pray for you ceaselessly. For this reason, I am committed to remember you in my prayers. For ceaseless praise to God and continual and committed prayer. Well, when he says for this reason, what is he referring to? What is he referring to? He is referring to what he just got through talking about in verses 3 through 14. He's talking about the great mystery of how God in his wisdom chose us before the foundation of the world. How he redeemed us in his son Jesus Christ, paying the ultimate price. God coming in flesh to live and to die for our sins in this world, overcoming sin and death and the grave for us. He's talking about how he has laid up for us in heaven blessings and treasures that are beyond description and how he has lavished his grace upon us more than we could ever imagine he has lavished his love and mercy and grace on us and how he has given us God the Holy Spirit, God to come and dwell in our hearts and lives so that we will have a strength to live right every day so that we'll have a guide to lead us and help us to understand and to make wise decisions and to reveal the Word of God and to be our comforter day by day. And he's talking about all of that stuff that ought to cause you and me to either jump up and shout praises to his name or fall on our face in endless prayer and praise to him. And he says, for this reason... I pray for you. For this reason, I offer to my Father ceaseless praise and continual and committed prayer. He's saying my motivation for praying is not because sister so-and-so is sick and it's not because brother and sister so-and-so's marriage is in trouble. And it's not because this other couple's son and daughter are not making wise choices. And it's not because you need this or you need that or you lost a job yesterday and need a job tomorrow. All those things, yes, should be prayed for. But ultimately, if that's your only motivation for praying, your prayer life is going to be a disaster all of your Christian life. Because you're going to live from one need to the next from one emergency to the next, from one dire situation to the next. He said, but let me tell you what motivates me to pray. The goodness and the greatness and the grace of the Lord lavished upon us that we sinful people 
should be, could be called the children of God in this world. And Paul, in that Roman prison hundreds of miles away, is thinking of this congregation in Ephesus, and he's seeing specific faces. He's remembering specific names, and he is thinking about how God, the God that saved him, even when he was on the Damascus Road with permission and letters of authority in his hand to persecute Christians in Damascus, and how God struck him down and spoke to him and saved him and redeemed him and taught him and called him and has blessed his ministry. And he's thinking about how these people who got saved as a result of that ministry and a result of the continuing ministry of people like Epaphroditus and others. And he is thinking in his mind, oh, these people, these dear people, and he's praying for them because of the greatness and the goodness of God. If you have a hard time praying for yourself, for your family, for your brothers and sisters in Christ, if you have a hard time praying consistently and fervently and joyfully and confidently, then you need to think more and dwell more on what God has done for you and the people you're praying for and for the honor and glory of the one who did everything for you. For this reason, let me pray for you. What a privilege it is. I said to you, prayerlessness is the sin, the greatest sin of the church today. I believe that. You say, well, I'm not even convinced that not praying is a sin. I thought sins were things you did, not things you did not do. Well, listen to these words of the prophet Samuel to the people of Israel and to the first king, King Saul. This is found in 1 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 23. Samuel says, As for me, far be it from me, that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. God forbid that I should sin against God by not praying for you. And I'm going to tell you, folks, that is a principle that holds true today. God forbid that I should sin against God in not praying for all of you and for others like you in our church family and for my family, for the loss of the world. Why? Because if I'm not praying as I should, it's because I am not focused on the great sacrifice and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf. Just keep reading. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 through 14, and let it motivate you to pray. For this reason, because God has done all of this. Well, let's go to a second point, and we'll not make it all the way through this point, and we'll call it quits in just about 10 minutes if you'll stay with me and be very attentive. What about the content of Paul's prayer? We've considered the catalyst the motivation for his prayer. Why do we pray for one another? For this reason, for all the things that God has done. What about the content of Paul's prayer? How do we pray and what do we pray for? And beloved church people, just we just can't get beyond this. 
For no matter how often we talk about the real reasons, the deep spiritual needs of people, what people truly need more than anything else, if I were to ask this morning, if I were to step down off this podium and say, okay, what prayer requests do you have today? We're going to start hearing about sick people. We're going to start hearing about people who need a job. We're going to start hearing about people who have specific needs. You might mention yourself that I've got this decision to make this week and I need wisdom and guidance. And listen to me. Don't, don't say that I'm, that I'm critical of that. We need to pray for those things. But when was the last time have you heard anybody stand up in a prayer meeting and say, I need for this congregation to pray for the spiritual eyes of my heart to be opened. I need God to do a work in my life, to open up my eyes, to help me see clearly the path before me. When was the last time you heard of a prayer like that? When was the last time you heard someone stand up and say, I need this congregation to pray for me because I'm struggling with the sin of you fill in the blank. You know why we don't do that? Because we're fearful that there are three or four other people in that congregation that have the sin of gossip and they're not repenting of it all. And as soon as you ask for help with your sin, they're going to tell the world. Right? God didn't tell you to protect that you have to protect your spiritual reputation. But because we fear what people think of us, we don't fear what God thinks of us. We don't know how to pray for one another. We don't pray for the right things for the right reasons, in the right way. Listen to verses 17 through 19 of this passage. He said, I do not cease, I'm actually beginning at 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, ceaseless praise, remembering you in my prayers, continual and committed prayers, listen to this, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. I'm going to tell you, my friend, that is the greatest need in prayer for the Lord's church today. It is Calvary's greatest need. It's First Baptist Church's greatest need. It's University Baptist Church's greatest need. It's Fellowship Bible Church's greatest need. And you go on and fill in the blank of any of God's churches that are true churches. And I want to tell you, the greatest need above everything else is that the Father of glory would give to us a spirit of wisdom of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having our eyes, the eyes of our hearts, of our hearts enlightened, opened up, made to see. You know why? Because our hearts are dull of seeing. The eyes of our hearts, spiritual discernment. What is he talking about when he refers to the eyes of your heart. Your heart doesn't really have eyes. He's, he's making a figure of speech. 
helping you to understand. And what he's talking about, he's talking about the believer's capacity to discern and understand spiritual realities related to the purpose and plan of God. Why do we get mad at God when he allows hard things to come into our lives? Why do we scratch our heads? And sometimes why do church people walk away from God when they see things that seem so unfair? It's because they have no discernment of the purpose and plan of God. God doesn't always give us the whys of life. But if God is a God that you believe in and trust, you don't need the why because you know the what and the whom. That God is fulfilling His purpose and plan perfectly, even if it means that it's absolutely knocking me to my knees and you too. Do you understand that? There's so many verses especially in the book of Psalms that I could read to you about having our eyes opened to God. But listen to just two. Psalm 13, verse 3. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. He's not talking about these eyes. He's talking about these eyes. And then Psalm 19, verse 7 and 8. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is pure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Now listen to this phrase. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes, not just these eyes, these eyes. Not just seeing and understanding the truth, but applying the truth to my heart in a way of wisdom so that I know God is looking out for my good. Before their conversion, these Ephesian believers, before their conversion, Paul's readers were darkened in their understanding. He's going to say that in chapter 4. You were darkened in your understanding. But now Paul prays that they would be enlightened by God's Spirit in order to comprehend the mysteries of God and His ways. And to see with the heart is to perceive not with physical eyes, but with eyes of faith. Let me ask you a question. How many of you need today, and I'm not asking for a show of hands, because I know the answer to this question, and you don't have to confess it to me one way or the other, but I'm asking you for you to give your thought to it. How many of you here today need to have the eyes of your heart enlightened to better understand the wisdom of God and what you're facing in life today? to better comprehend what God is up to so that your hope, your confidence, your assurance about tomorrow can be assured and will be assured so that you can live confidently and faithfully in this world. How many of you need that today? 
I know I do. I know I do. And can I say this without sounding judgmental? Every last one of you, beginning with Brother David here, working all the way across this worship center up into the balcony, that Brother David, first and second David, that's the biblical way of referring to your church shepherd leaders. All the way over here to Brother Justin, another shepherd leader, Miss Barbara, the ladies in the nursery, Brother Steve Hignite out there in the entryway, keeping an eye out for the bad guys for us while we're here worshiping. Every one of us, every one of us need to have our hearts, eyes enlightened so that we can see more clearly the purpose and the plan of God for our lives, for our families, for the world around us. Not so that problems will go away, not so that all problems are going to have a sudden solution, because they won't, but so that we can see Christ in the middle of all of this, so that we can see He has our best interest at His heart at all times, even when He is crushing our spirit, and it seems like He is just mashing our souls into the ground. God is a loving God and is only doing that in order to accomplish something better for our lives. Folks, that's what this letter is all about. And that's how you pray for one another. I want you to pray for me and my family and for our needs to be met. But most of all, our greatest need is to be able to see life from God's perspective, from God's viewpoint. If you pray for your pastor or for his wife today, pray for the eyes of our hearts to be enlightened. That's what we need most of all. Now, Paul is going to get much more specific about what that looks like, but we'll take up with that next week. Instead of me praying my prayer at the close of the message, let me read to you and let us together pray the prayer that Paul offers in chapter 3. Can we put that last slide on the screen? Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. Read this out loud with me, would you, as our prayer together. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And God's people here at Calvary added to that a further Amen. Our heart's desire is that you grow and understand the direction God has for you in your life. We hope that by listening today, you are one step closer to discovering that for yourself. If you live in Northwest Arkansas and are looking for a church to call your own, we invite you to reach out to us at Calvary as we study and serve together. We meet for worship at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you wish to find out more information about Calvary Church or simply contact us, you can do that through our Facebook page or at calvaryfayetteville.com. Until next time, remember that God, His Word, and His people can provide direction for life.